how uh, we take for granted often the ability to come to praise your name, to speak it, to study your word, and to, uh, to give honor and glory to you. There are many in other countries who don't have this freedom. They don't have this opportunity, or they have to do it under the cloak of darkness or, or other ways. Um, because we have this freedom, God, help us to be more bold. Help us to share your name and make it part of, of our everyday conversation. I pray that we uh, take what we have and the joy of knowing you and, uh, and freely give it to others because uh, it is the most joyous thing in the world. And we look forward to that day when we will be with you face to face and understand all so much clearer. And pray this morning helps us to uh, drive ourselves a little closer to that in your name. Amen. Okay, we're going to cover the doctrine of regeneration this morning. And I want to first take a moment to recap where we've been in the series so you can see the bigger skip picture, the, the scope of what we're trying to do here, what we're trying to convey. And uh, we've gone through a, a couple different uh, lessons. We started with the doctrine of salvation, what must I do to be saved? We looked at that extensively along with the doctrine of grace. How is it that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone? So we started with salvation. We looked at, at grace. We looked at the doctrine of election. God choosing some and not choosing others. The doctrine of atonement, how Christ died once for all. Uh, we've looked at the doctrine of divine calling. What are we really called to do? What are his purposes in us? Those kind of things. Uh, the doctrine of conversion. What is repentance and what are its implications? This week we're going to look at the doctrine of regeneration. Uh, John 3, 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Then we're going to look at the union, doctrine of the union with Christ, um, probably next week. How is it that Christ lives within us when we're un unified with him? What is that about? And uh, the doctrine of justification, how the Lord is our righteousness. Um, that just so rich, a lot of implications behind that. Uh, doctrine of sanctification, how we're then transformed in his likeness, how that happens. And uh, the doctrine of preservation and perseverance, how we're protected by the power of God himself, and never can he let us out of his hands. And then the doctrine of glorification, uh, we should always be looking for that time when we're glorified in heaven, being with him forever and eternity, and uh, being around others who are sinners just like us and not being... Uh, not having to deal with sin anymore. So today we want to look at regeneration. This is a very important doctrine. It has a champion section of the Bible that kind of really directs us well to it, and it's going to be the basis of our study. So turn, if you would, with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I know Steve is going to be covering this in greater detail in a few years when he gets through chapter 2 of John and gets to chapter 3. Um, also, you may recognize some of this from Bible Training Institute. We've covered some of this even fairly recently. <clears throat> this passage, along with Titus 3, 5, and 6, lays out the doctrine of regeneration. So let's read John 3, 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So let's first define regeneration. That way, that's right. I think we had this trouble before. Okay, this is from Bible Training Institute. We use this definition for regeneration. It's the act of God awakening spiritual life within us, bringing us from spiritual death to spiritual life. I'll repeat that. It's the act of God awakening spiritual life within us, bringing us from spiritual death to spiritual life. In the hour or so that we have this morning, we're going to walk through John 3 to better understand regeneration. Nicodemus was a a card-carrying, gun-toting, ultra-right conservative Jewish leader at the time. He was as as Jewish as he could be. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, so that's about the 70 leaders and rulers of the synagogue. It was their job to know Scripture and to teach the people. He's come to Jesus asking a soteriological question about salvation. How does one become saved? Well, he well knows the scripture. So he would know Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, which says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh." And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So he knew that scripture. Also, Deuteronomy 5 was very, very solid in all of their teachings. Verse 29 to 33. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and it may go well with you, and that you may live long in your land that you shall possess. So it's kind of outlining some of the things that are there for them. This was a great hope of Israel. They were looking forward to this. But Jesus answered Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So they had this certain thought process of, of God coming, but he's talking about this being born again. Notice here in this verse, the verb is passive. It's a passive verb, not an active one, not something you need to do, but something that is done to you unless one is born. That's, that's is happening to him at first, not to something that you do, but something that is done to you. So unless this happens to you, unless you are born again, he doesn't go to the temp, tell, tell him to go to the temple and give certain sacrifices. He doesn't offer any moral code for him to follow. He doesn't say, repeat this prayer after me. He says, you have to have something done to you. That's what salvation is about. And the word again that's right after that, 
can also be accurately translated from above, unless one is born from above. That's a a much better rendering to understand it, unless one is born from above. So the action done upon the person is not done by themselves, but it's done from someone who is above them, somebody else. This brings us to a theological statement here. This is a monergistic work rather than a synergistic work. It's monergistic versus synergistic. It's not done by one. It's, it's not a, I'm sorry, it's done by one. It is not a mutual work. The act of generation is, regeneration is something done by one individual and not something that you and God do together. It is done to you alone. Similar to Abrahamic covenant. Remember that in Genesis 15? Made, God made a covenant with Abraham, and God promised to bless Abraham and all of his descendants, and they made some vows. They cut some animals in half, they, and they separated them, and God and, and Abraham were going to walk through those animals, which was a sign that if I don't obey my part of this, this is what would happen to me. You can cut me in half. And so they were going to do that, but what happened? Abraham fell asleep. He, he didn't do it. Only God alone went through the uh, and made the covenant, and God obligated himself to hold up his end of the deal, even though Abraham would not. It was monergistic rather than a synergistic agreement. God does it all on his own. There's one agent working in the process of our new birth. So here in regeneration in John 3, it's God alone who would be doing the work to do the rebirthing that's explained to Nicodemus. I love how Nicodemus responds in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, just like creation was a comprehensive work, it happened, it was done all at once, the, um, so is childbirth, isn't it? You do it and it's done. Um, and so it is with regeneration in the same way. It's done once and it's complete. 2 Corinthians 5.17 it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all has come new. Is a person born and then grows legs when they need to walk or they get hands when they need to write? Do his organs slowly develop after he's born? No, he's made complete with everything needed to sustain life. That's the way that we're born. It's the same with regeneration. Upon God regenerating, you're fully saved and your place in heaven is secured. It's all completely done at that time. Sanctification, though, which we're going to get to in a, in a few weeks, is the process where you, whereby you put off the old man and you put on the new. You're changing these sins that you have. We're going to be discussing that, though, in a few weeks. So Jesus answers Nicodemus in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Well, we have this idea of the water and the spirit, and that brings up another issue we need to cover. I want to share with you six of the historical viewpoints on regeneration. I have six of them here that we're going to, we're going to go through. Uh, <clears throat> the baptismal regeneration view, self-actualized regeneration, presumptive or promissory regeneration, synergistic regeneration, regeneration as a response to faith, and then regeneration as work of God, which enables saving faith. So we're going to walk through some of these so you understand the differences between them. The first one, baptismal regeneration view, 
this is held by Catholics and Lutherans quite heavily, uh, interprets this verse, we're looking at John 3, 5, as stating that God gives regeneration through regenerating grace through the sacrament of baptism. That is how it is done. This includes cleansing from sin, symbolized by the water, infusion of regenerating grace, and union with Christ. So they're saying this is what occurs. To them, baptism is necessary for salvation. Their, their early advocates, like Arrhenius, point back to 2 Kings 5, where Naaman, the leper, was to wash himself in the Jordan, and they state that this shows that baptism was even back then, it's what saved. Justin Martyr, who died in 165 AD, referred to baptism as the washing that is for the remission of sins and unto regeneration. And Augustine insisted that the sacrament of baptism is undoubtedly the sacrament of regeneration. So you can see there's been some confusion, some different viewpoints that have occurred in history. Well, about the 5th century, infant baptism became common practice in the church, and you can see why. Would you want your baby to die and not have a chance of going to heaven? I mean, that was kind of the thought back then. Because you didn't baptize it, it's not able to go to heaven so it was really the work of the parents at that point now affecting the child's salvation. It kind of, it's, it's getting to be the parents' work at that point. But you say, well, what about someone didn't have a chance uh, to, be, to be baptized? What, how would they deal with that, such as the thief on the cross? Well, uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, who held this view, also upheld the so-called baptism of desire, is what they called that. This perspective, such a man, he says, can obtain salvation without actually being baptized on account of his desire for baptism, whereby God sanctifies man inwardly. So they tried to leave like a little loophole there just in case for those few people who it couldn't, it couldn't happen to. And so the Catholic Church continued to propagate this view, and, and that's been a part of their, their history. The Second Vatican Council in 1965, they held that for Roman Catholics, faith and baptism are necessary for salvation. But you'll find that most Catholics and even most priests bend really heavily on this claim and that all peoples are saved by the desire of baptism. So they point back to that. Well, they desired to. Therefore, they would be baptized. Um, and that's almost equivalent to the nonspecific implicit faith that all humans have this. And therefore, everyone, because they want salvation, they would become saved. So anybody who has a heart's desire can have it is eventually where they land. Sorry to burst your bubble, but Martin Luther upheld the doctrine, doctrine of baptismal regeneration. He believed that God's usual way of regenerating is at the baptismal fountain. Baptism affects justification, the forgiveness of sins, and imparts the gift of the Spirit and recreates the divine image in them. So he thought it had something special there. In his view, in the customary infant baptism, regeneration occurs at the moment when the invoked word of God unites with the sign of water, which is through the baptism, and as the infant then responds to the gospel with rudimentary faith. So he does say it does have to have that child actually having faith. Baptism does not regenerate simply because performed, he said. Um, Baptism without faith is useless. So he wasn't totally heretical there. He wrote, baptism is not merely water, but it is water used according to God's command and connected with God's word. It's not the water that produces these effects, but the word of God connected with the water and our faith, which relies on the word of God, connected with the water. So they're kind of all connected together, but he left this infant baptism as a part of it. So don't worry, he wasn't a heretic stating that baptism saves, but he did see it as a part of regeneration. 
Remember, he grew up in a Roman Catholic world. That's all that was around him really at that time, and he was refuting much of what the Roman Catholics said and taught, um, which was that regeneration was more like back then what we see as sanctification was, was more like their regeneration. That is, it wasn't fully completed until the end of a person's life. It was a process. Let me back up now a little bit and give you another view of regeneration, one that's even further to the left viewpoint, which would be held by liberals and Pelagians. This is the self-actualized regeneration is what it's called. Pelagius and liberal, um, liberals view regeneration as the process of ethical development stimulated by the ideals of Jesus. Okay, so Jesus was good, and that stimulates stuff within us. If, as they believe, all humans are born without sin, which is way typically they do, then there's no need for baptism. There, there's no sin in there, so why do we have to worry about that, including that of baptism? So they wouldn't believe that. People do sin, and therefore salvation occurs when they forsake sin and, and obey the divine law. The power and stimulus for such action comes from the example of Jesus. So because Jesus did all this, we want to follow after him, and that's why they would follow this type of a, uh, of a teaching. So to Pelagius, there's not a need for supernatural regeneration, but rather personal and moral reformation. That's what, he, what they're, they're claiming. Pelagius stated that this made God only a spectator in the drama of human redemption. So God's just there watching as man is working out his own redemption. Regeneration is defined, therefore, as the gradual transformation of the social order, specifically as the spread of the spirit of Christ in the political, industrial, social, scientific, and artistic life of humanity. So you can see it's, it's very broad, very general. Can you see how that's rampant in our society now? And we see a lot of that's what is defined as Christianity. I look at Bakersfield, which appears at first glance to be a city where everybody talks about God and apple pie and Chevrolet and Jesus, and you hear a lot of that talk. Yet, what is their true worldview behind what they're saying? Who is their God and who is this Jesus? Exactly what type of theology is driving this? Often it is a social gospel. Yeah, Jesus was a, a guy that we're going to follow his example. If you read the literature of those in this liberation theology is what it's called, where re- regeneration is self-actualized, you'll see a few, very few in- inferences and references to spiritual regeneration or salvation of persons. It's always a social aspect. It's always political and economic issues. This is where somebody like Trump might be able to actually think that he's a Christian because he's following, yeah, I'm after the social good of all people because Jesus was a good example. And uh, you don't hear him speak of spiritual regeneration, though, do you? Further, those who espouse this view, like uh, Lewis Ford, he stated, everywhere God's creative urging towards the establishment of increased levels of intensity is present, but only with intelligent life can there be an awareness of this. He searched these claims can then come through Jesus, through Plato, through Buddha, through a lot of different people. So it's, it's an all-inclusive thing because we're all getting better because of it. He takes John 3, 3, and he says, In terms of perishing occasions of our temporal life, we are being born anew and from above as we receive novel initial aims from God, originating our subjectivity from moment to moment. Essentially, you make your own rebirth by following your heart to do what's best to do, that you think is best. That's what we have as a view of Christianity. You see that just pervasive in our society, don't we? 
Can't you see why we need the true gospel out there being preached? I have a few sisters who uh, believe they're true true Christians, and they believe this kind of way. They think that their salvation is because of this, and, oh, yeah, Jesus is a good example. They've got a real problem aligning their soteriology with Scripture, in that they often don't want to look at it. Okay, a third view of regeneration is synergistic regeneration, which is held by those who follow on our Arminian theology. To them... God regenerates when the pre-Christian believes by a free act of the will, which involves ceasing to resist the moral influences of truth presented to all persons everywhere. So it's the the person themselves that's now going to cause this process. They don't start with the total depravity of man because he's basically good in their eyes. They don't start with unconditional election because everyone has a latent opportunity within them. They don't believe in limited atonement because Christ died in their eyes for everyone, whether they go to heaven or whether they go to hell, he died for them. And grace is resistible to them because it's man, excuse me, man's free will to choose if they want to obey Christ. The saved, then, are those who cooperate with God's provenient grace. The unsaved are those who fail to cooperate. You don't. This is what you got, and, and you're therefore not going to apply it. John Wesley, he was a major advocate of this view. He argued that the unregenerate, since blessed by by provenient grace, are able to do these things. They're able to hear the voice of God in their conscience. They're able to acknowledge responsibility for sins. They're able to seek righteousness, and they're able to trust God for salvation. So man has these abilities to do all that. He also added that renewal in the image of God or the new birth can be lost due to deliberate sin. That naturally fits in. Oh, you keep you all of a sudden change your ways and you do this, you're now lost. You're not going to be saved. Thus, assurance of forgiveness of sins extends no further than the present moment, and you're always having to go back and get saved again and saved again. Titus 2.11 to them says, when it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, that frees the human will to cooperate with God in the work of salvation. Man's the one that's doing it, they think. Human free will and divine grace work together to produce the new birth or regeneration, which consists of justification and sanctification. So it's man working with God. Charles Finney, one of the major leaders in this, he took a step further, defining regeneration as a change in the attitude of the will and a change of moral character. He said, regeneration consists of the sinner changing his ultimate choice, intention, preference, or in changing from selfishness to love or obedience. So it's it's man doing all this. Non-Christians, because of that, would then be seen as possessing a natural ability in themselves to choose God. So ministers then, when they preach, quote, they should aim at and expect the regeneration of sinners upon the spot and before they leave the house of God. So what was Finney known for? He would have these fiery tent revivals and, and they'd have 50 verses as just as I am until the last person came down the aisle because you got to keep being saved and keep being saved. And that's what drove this whole thing. I grew up in a church that was kind of like that and we just keep until enough people came forward. God is seen as working synergistically with the person to do the work until they pull. And the preacher can also be the one that's, that's causing this within them. Okay. Next, the fourth view would be presumptive or promissory regeneration. This would be the typical covenant reformed view. And please note, just because I'm putting labels on these does not mean that everybody that uses these labels believes this way. This is a compilation of review of the main individuals who espouse these views. 
In this view, regeneration is defined as that radical change of nature from spiritual death to spiritual life worked in us by Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is great. It is a new heart that God supernaturally puts in us while the elect remain entirely passive. Regeneration is not a synergistic work, but rather monergistic from one end to the other. So this is sounding really great. This, therefore, because of this, it's 100% all God doing. The conclusion is that regeneration is placed before conversion in the order of salvation. Okay, So there's an order of the way things happen. Here's where it gets a little off. Presumptive regeneration asserts that infants of believing parents are baptized not to become regenerated, but because of, in some important sense, they already possess the seeds of faith and regeneration in them. It's not saying that they're saved, but being in this family. To them, the sacrament of baptism is a sign or promise of the covenantal grace God is working in the elect, including infants born into their community. Okay? A more common view, though, is the promissory regeneration view as part of this, where baptism is judged as a visible sign of God's promise of new life to believing adults and their children. So it's a sign out there. John Calvin, a precursor of the covenant view, stated, Begun in baptism, regeneration does not take place in one moment or one day or one year. Rather, it is accomplished through continual and sometimes even slow advances. He points to John leaping in the womb of his mother Elizabeth before he was born. As an example, the Westminster Confession uh, favored this view of regeneration, stating, Baptism is a sign, a seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up to God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. They also symbolically tie Old Testament circumcision to baptism. The two are now linked together. W.G. Shedd stated, In adults, regeneration immediately exhibits its fruit in the converting act of faith and repentance. In the case of infant regeneration, there's an interval of time between regeneration and conversion. Okay, So this regeneration starts a lot earlier. Virtually all Reformed Covenant theologians hold that regeneration precedes conversion. A fifth view is very similar to this, and that's regeneration as a response, uh, is a work of God in response to faith. We see here that regeneration is an instantaneous work of God, whereby God grants new spiritual life by virtue of a person's conscious decision to repent of sins and appropriate the provisions of Christ's atonement. Do any of you remember the Order Salutis that I presented a couple weeks ago when I, I taught the first lesson of this group, or Order of Salvation? I mentioned that last time I spoke on this topic. And let me show you this Order of Salvation. This is kind of the way that, uh, that we look at this. So it starts with an effectual call. God is the one that does that. Uh, there's a belief in the gospel. Then there's repentance, trust in Christ, regeneration, union with Christ, justification, sanctification, perseverance at that point, and eventually glorification. This is the order, if, if we wanted to kind of parse it and take it all apart here, where the presumptive or promissory regeneration theory places itself right after the calling or the response to faith view. Um, that would put it after belief in the gospel. So these four happen all very closely together. Let me show you this next one here. Next slide. So effectual calling is God doing it. God does that part, and then we have a belief because God 
goes and generates this within us, we then have a belief in the gospel, which we couldn't have without that calling. Then we repent, trust in Christ. At that point, we are regenerated. We have reunion with Christ. We have justification, and then the sanctification process. Uh, God is regenerating. God is doing the union with Christ. God is doing all the rest of it. Let me show you a comparative here of the two different views. So promissory regeneration puts it up there much higher. They say there's effectual calling that happens, and then regeneration starts, and this is where infant baptism falls in, and there can be a, a long time gap there. So there's a time between that and belief in the gospel. As opposed to response to faith over here in red, you can see it happens after, actually, these things that occur. So when is God doing that work of regeneration? Minor, minor issues we're talking about here, but this is just the order of what happens. Notice it's God that does this, and it's God, uh, we're the ones that just have a part in it. By putting regeneration after belief in the gospel, it avoids the possibility of any gaps in regeneration and conversion. Spurgeon is one who opposes the view that Christians uh, birth into a Christian family that guarantees regeneration. He says, quote, there can be no such thing as sponsorship in receiving Christ or in faith. If you are an unbeliever, your father and mother may be the most eminent saints, but this faith does not overlap and cover your unbelief. You must believe yourself. Regeneration must involve the spiritual innovation of one's entire being, said Spurgeon. Now, I'm not saying that the people who believe in promissory regeneration automatically say that if you're born this into a family that's Christians that you're going to be saved. That is not what they say. But they, they're stating that by being in this covenant group, this family, you have a, a protection around you or some type of thing that, that helps there in that way. There's one other belief here that I'll cover, which is <clears throat> regeneration as a work of God, which enables saving faith. It enables saving faith. There's a key Different word here is enables. A.H. Strong stated, Regeneration or new birth is the divine side of that change of heart, which, viewed from the human side, we call conversion. It is God turning the soul to himself, conversion being the soul turning itself to God, of which God turning it is both the accompaniment and the cause. So God is the one that's doing the whole thing, and he's causing the enabling during this time. This is the view that we mostly hold, and these last couple of views are very, very similar, so you don't think that somebody's an absolute heretic if they have this order differently. That's not what we're saying here. God is the one that first calls us and gives us the ability to believe the gospel. This enables us to repent of our sins and to turn from them to Christ as our only hope of salvation. He, in turn, does the work in regenerating us. So now he that's when the regeneration happens, making us a new creature in Christ. We're then united with him and justified from our sins, and the rest of our life is spent in the sanctification process. So you see, that's the way that it, it comes out there. For many of you are thinking, why are we splitting hairs this way? I mean, this is just such minor stuff. And we are somewhat, but there is a logical order to this which allows the scriptures that are associated with this to properly be uh, interwoven. What we don't want to do is allow an error in doctrine by incorrectly identifying that we have some part of it or that we don't, or if we don't, or if we miss out on the magnitude of what God has done here. This is just amazing what God has done, that, that he has chosen us in this way. It seems like all six of these things, go back one slide if you would. All six of these things happen at one time. In fact, let's go forward. I think I, I put this as a slide here, the next one here. Uh, I guess I didn't. I had one that had the green on it. Um, 
but to show that there's a compressed group of these things where they all happen simultaneously. Go back a couple. I think I can do it with my pointer here. So if you look, why is that not pointing? No, it's not there. Um, but the the regeneration, belief in gospel, repentance, trust in Christ, union with Christ, justification, those all happen really, really quick. So this is really happening fast in our view here. So let's turn back to John 3, verse 5, answering the issue of what it means of one to be born again of water and spirit, because this is where much of the diverse views come from. Let's let's look to see what it says. John 3, verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So what does the water here refer to? There's seven possibilities of what this is. So the first is that it could be the seed of man with a woman. Really speaking of birth here, being a part of nature as is water. It's kind of a hard one to to work, but some people believe that. The second is physical birth that happens actually in the actual process when a woman says she broke her water. So that's part, one of the thoughts is, oh, it's the physical birth there. Third is water symbolizes the Holy Spirit. We see that throughout scripture. Water is talking about the Holy Spirit. In, uh, this would be redundant, though, born of the Spirit and of the Spirit, so that doesn't really make too much sense there. A fourth view is the Word of God from Ephesians 5.26, where it speaks of the washing of the, by the water, uh, by the Word, um, that it's the Word. It's the Word of God. But this is, there's no place in that, no context that would make sense for that here, that this is the Word of God. The fifth one is the baptism of John, because that had happened just a little bit prior to this. John was out there baptizing, and uh, but John consistently pointed to Christ. So it wouldn't make sense that John's baptism and the Holy Spirit is what would do it. The baptism of Christ would be another one when, when Christ is baptized, uh, or just having baptism itself, but the thief on the cross. You can't have the thief on the cross who didn't get baptized. Today you will be with me in paradise, he was told. So the most logical conclusion is that speaking of purification or cleansing. Who was John writing to? Those of you who have been in in, uh, Bible Training Institute, who was John writing to? The Jews. So he was a Jew writing to Jews about a Jew, wasn't he? So the Jews knew their scripture. They, They did know it. They had heard it regularly. They would have known Ezekiel 36, which we read earlier, 25 to 27. I will, let me read this again because it has a little different context now when we read it. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. To the Jews in Ezekiel's time, this was a future promise. This was something that was going to be coming. And Christ is pointing back to it in John 3. Remember that? This is what is. This is the fulfillment. This is the washing. This is the purification that's going on. Psalm 51.7 is another one. Um, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That's regeneration. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. This is the purging. This is the cleansing that's coming. 
Nave's topical Bible had 37 instances of regeneration in the Old Testament where it was pointing to, here's different ways that there's regeneration, which is a, it's a cleansing. But were Old Testament saints actually um, regenerated? Did that actually happen to them in the same way it happens to us? In the Old Covenant, their sins were remembered. They were still there. They were not blotted out because Christ has not died yet. It was the promise of the new covenant that they were looking forward. That would give them their future spiritual reformation or transformation, along with Yahweh's promise to restore Israel to the land. So there's a future that's being promised. In the Old Testament, they didn't have the indwelling of the Spirit either. So they didn't have all the pieces that are necessary to cause this. So here's the best conclusion we can find. Demarest says it this way. God set believing men and women in Old Testament times in a right relationship with himself. Their sins were forgiven, Psalm 32, 1 and 2. They communed with the Lord and they anticipated the blessings of heaven. We see that in Hebrews 11. But before the completion of Christ's work and the Pentecostal outpouring, Old Testament believers did not possess the Spirit as a permanent endowment and they were not completely transformed thereby. So it it didn't happen in the same way. When we go into the New Testament, I want to look at another verse to explore, and that's Titus 3, 5. This hits on regeneration. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Regeneration here is linked to two things, if you read there. There's washing and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Well, that exactly agrees with John 3, doesn't it? There's a washing and a renewing that goes on involving water and involving the spirit. That, that is exactly, it's water and the spirit and water being the, the cleansing of purification. Another verse, 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his mercy, his great mercy, he has caused us to be born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused this to be done, and it happens to us. Lastly, Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. So you can see that's the process of regeneration. Regeneration, again, according to our BTI definition, is the act of God awakening spiritual life within us, bringing us from spiritual death to spiritual life. So what does this mean for us? What does regeneration do? How how should we act because of this? I've spent 40 minutes talking about this. How should it affect us? So here's some results of this wonderful truth. Number one, we partake in God's divine nature. We can, we can actually partake in God's divine nature. Second Peter 1, 4 says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful de- desires. Wow, that's amazing that we actually partake in God's nature. Just phenomenal. Number two, we have a new self. We have a new self. That's fantastic. I mean, our old self, get rid of it. Ephesians 4.24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's exciting to know that we don't have this old self. We can then not be the same person that we were. Immediately, God does that for us. 
Number three, we're a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Man, this is a, we're a totally different person. This is a putting off and a putting on. This is a turning from our sin and turning as a new creature to Christ. We have a new mind. Number four there, 1 Corinthians 2.16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. We don't have this old mind that that has to always think the thoughts that we had. And we can put those off. We can say, okay, I have the mind of Christ in me. I need to act that way. I need to change because of God regenerating me. We have a new heart, Romans 5, 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's what it takes is a new heart. We have a rotten heart to start with, and the only way that we can change is through the cross. God works on our heart and changes us from who we are to who he wants us to be only through his cross, only through repentance, only through salvation. He can give us a new heart. And when we look back at our sins or when we're trying to help somebody deal with their sins, we point back to, you know what? God can change your heart. I can't change your heart. You can't change your heart. It has to be God that changes your heart. And so we take them to scripture, we take them to repentance, and that's where we can see that God can change them because God has given us a new heart. Number six is a new will to obey God. A new will to obey God. Romans six thirteen says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's a different will. That's being able to obey God in a different way. Man can't, standard man without being regenerated cannot do that. He doesn't have the ability. You know, as hard as man tries to be good and righteous, it's still as filthy rags. So with God, we have a new will to obey God, and he's moved us from death to life. Lastly, there, a circumcision of the heart. We have a circumcision of the heart. Colossians 2.1 says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Totally different circumcision than the Old Testament. That might have been a good sign, but now it's our hearts. And Christ often would talk about the Jews were circumcised, but they weren't circumcised in heart, right? And that's exactly who he went after was the hypocrites, those who were the religious leaders who were trying to portray that they had it all together, but their hearts were still evil. Their heart had never been changed. Their heart wasn't circumcised to follow after Christ. Now we will have a heart circumcised to follow Christ. This study wouldn't be complete with going back and looking at John 3 and finishing up with verse 8. Verse 8 there where we had started. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Notice here when Nicodemus asks about regeneration, Jesus doesn't say to him, repeat this prayer after me. You know, And so that's where we look at altar calls, and that's why we don't have an altar call. We don't want to force somebody to, to make them make an emotional decision. We want to let the Holy Spirit work in their hearts and say, no, it's not a formula. It's not you come down here and you say this or read these five things and say them. No, it's, it's about what the Holy Spirit does. We don't know when or how the Spirit works, but we certainly see its results. It's just like the wind. You don't know where it comes from, where it goes. We don't know how the Holy Spirit goes and does that first thing of actually calling us and 
preparing us at that point. We don't know how or when the Spirit works, but we see its results. This is the mystery, the great mystery of regeneration. Let me close with our doctrinal statement at Grace Bible Church. It says, Regeneration is accomplished when the repentant sinner, as enabled by the Holy Spirit, responds in faith to the divine provisions of salvation. And that's our prayer for everyone here. And that's why we want to go out and share the gospel with others, because we want to see the Holy Spirit making those changes, and people will respond to the divine provision that God has provided in salvation. What a great, great hope we have, isn't it? Let me close in prayer. God, I I thank you for your regeneration of us. We in no way, shape, or form could ever, ever uh, attain to any of this. And to see that it is all your work. It is you working in us. It's not us making a decision for you. It is is you choosing us before the foundation of the world, world. It is you making that change. It's you giving us a new heart, a new self, a new creature, a new mind. It's you that allows us to take part in your divine nature. What an amazing thought it is. God, I pray that we live each day with that hope, with that uh, anticipation and that joy, that we share it with others, that we don't hold it in, that we, uh, we shout it from the rooftops that this church is known as a church that wants to proclaim your word because we know we've been regenerated and we are so thankful. Be with us the rest of this morning. We thank you in your name. Amen.